This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. As we enter another year of the pandemic, countries are on alert for another spike in infections and the possibility of new variants circulating. And genomic surveillance will continue to be important in monitoring the pandemic as well as in preparing for any future outbreaks. However, not all countries, especially low- and middle-income countries, have the capacity to conduct large-scale genomic sequencing. So what can the experience of the African region teach us? when it comes to implementing a region-wide genomic surveillance network, especially where many of its member countries um, were quite lacking in that kind of uh, technological capacity to begin with. My guest today, Dr. Sarah Mwangi, can probably shed quite a bit of light. My name is Dr. Sarah Mwangi and I'm the implementation science expert for pathogen genomics at the Africa Centers for Disease Control. So, Dr. Sarah, throughout the pandemic, we've been hearing um, a lot about new variants of the virus that developed. Um, We know about Alpha, we know about Delta, of course, and uh, more recently, Omicron. So, in this kind of context, what exactly is genomic surveillance and what can it tell us? Um, So, well, genomic surveillance is really using the genetic uh, makeup of an organism. So, in our case, uh, we would say the SARS-CoV-2 virus, to really constantly monitor the genetic similarities and differences. And then we use this information to track uh, the spread of variants and monitor the changes uh, in the genetic code of the of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So very important in, in informing public health because um, once we identify we've got variants, then the other issue, thing we need to look at, is it a variant of concern or a variant of interest? If it's a variant of, of concern, which is what we're mostly interested with, it means that it's able to change its biology, you know, to be able to evade some of the already measures that have been put forward for control, such as uh, it could be therapies in terms of drugs, or it could be vaccines. So we are using this information to help us be able to control the pandemic by being able to design effective uh, therapeutics uh, or effective vaccines. Mm. And and the word surveillance um, suggests that it's not a, a one-off or infrequent kind of tracking of variants or the virus itself. Surveillance uh, suggests constant monitoring, am I right? Exactly. So there has to be constant monitoring of the pathogens uh, because, uh, I mean, when you're thinking about the genetic makeup of an organism, that's uh, you're talking about the nucleotide sequence. It is the bl- blueprint that determines all the, I would say, the phenotypic characteristics of the organisms. And they're happening at a molecular level. And uh, we don't know at what point this one change is going to have a dramatic effect on the physiology of the particular organism. So we've got to keep constantly monitoring because we call them these changes or this uh, we call them mutations. So they happen. It's it's a once off thing, but then they keep on accumulating over the course of time. And then mm. it's this accumulation that actually leads to this uh I would say kind of physiological or rather biological mechanisms where they are able to uh, evade the vaccines or evade the therapies. Mm. Um, So surveillance is in itself like something that has to keep on going on Mm. uh, to keep monitoring 
what is what changes are happening at the genetic level of any organisms and in our case uh, the, the the pathogen mm. um so basically it's um testing a lot of people uh and with from their test results um extracting the virus to to study its genetic makeup is that right Exactly. All right. And uh, in 2020, the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, which is where you're at, launched a multi-sectoral partnership, and that's the Africa Pathogen Genomics Initiative. So I think this will be a great time to sort of talk about how this initiative came about and what was it intended to do. So I will perhaps maybe just start by giving you a background of really where we started mm-hmm. uh, because the idea of having a pan-African genomic surveillance uh, system was there just as the Af- Africa CDC was being officially launched. As you might know, Africa CDC is about six years old. It was launched in uh, January of 2017. And uh, in 2018 and 2019, a continental assessment of the pathogen genomics and bioinformatics capacity within the continent was done uh, by the Africa Centers for Disease Control. Um, uh, and I think this, what came out of this study is actually quite uh, astonishing that in the public health ecosystem, we've got, we ha- only had seven functional national public health institutions seven out of 55 African Union member states that mm. had capability to do genomic surveillance of, of, of pathogens in the NPHIs. There was capacity, yes, but it was sitting in the, I would say, in the research institutions and in the academics and perhaps we would say in the private sector. Mm. So we, we are sitting here with 48 countries out of 55 that do not have uh, public health, uh, uh, rather do not have genomic surveillance capabilities in the public health laboratories. And I think uh, the question was at that time, and or rather the question we ask ourselves at this point is how, how would that have impacted the detection of SARS-CoV-2? if COVID-19 had actually emerged in Africa, you know, in one of the countries without the, the genomic surveillance mm. capacities. Because it used, it. Um, I mean, SARS-CoV-2 was identified as a virus because of the of the genomic sequencing. Uh, genomic sequencing is what identified it as a virus in the first place yeah. and also as a virus of the SARS family, but of course a different uh, virus from the SARS-CoV-1. So in November of 2019, uh just about the, t- the same time, I would assume the COVID uh, p- pandemic was starting. Uh, the Africa CDC launched the Africa Pathogen uh, Genomics uh, Initiative. And, and I think uh, ever since then, we've been, and then COVID-19, as you might remember, actually officially launched, started in 29, December of 2019. Yes. So that's just one month after the Africa CDC Pathogen yeah. Genomics Initiative was launched. So, um, and I think the first case in Africa was was announced, it will be sometimes in January of 2020. Um, so what you see now is is that in, in October of 2020, so there's a lot of planning between the, those uh, first few months, and uh, we we formed the the, the the initiative. Actually, was was not formed, but it was officially launched in October of 2020. And I think since then we've been implementing a pan-African genomic surveillance network using uh, SARS-CoV-2 as a model, and at the moment trying to see how we can use. Uh, this uh, network that we've created for genomic surveillance for onboarding other pathogens as we prepare for the next pandemic. 
So what are the advantages of having it as a regional network as opposed to, you know, even if it was seven centres, even if um, individual member states were later building up their own genomic surveillance um, capabilities, it would still be different from all coming together under this network, right? So what does a network achieve? Yeah, so I think what I would say, if if I could do a reflection of what we've been able to achieve in the in the in the last year, is mm-hmm. really showing the power of coming together instead of doing it individually. Africa is a very huge continent. You're yeah. talking about fifty five countries that each have got different priorities, different uh, ways of operation. But I think united. Uh, in the common agreement that uh, it's easier for us to face the next pandemic together. And how do we do that? Uh, we use our our synergies or our strength to build capacity within our, our, or among ourselves. So what we did in the last two years, uh, we've got what we could refer to as the centers of excellence or the regional hubs that we placed uh, strategically across the continent. We've got uh, some that serve the Northern African uh, member states. We've got some that serve the Eastern Africa Mm. and then Southern Africa, Western Africa and so on. So the idea was if any country does not have the capability to sequence uh, or to do genomic surveillance of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, then we leverage on this uh, network on the other regional hubs for these countries to send those samples to the regional hubs, uh, the nearest regional hub, yep. where the sequencing would be done and then the data would be sent back to the country. Mm-hmm. So I would say because of that, you can see we, have, uh, uh, we had about 35 countries that were able to access genomic surveillance capabilities, even if they did not have any genomic surveillance mm-hmm. capabilities uh, or rather before. So for us, having this unified or centralized way of operation, because we are operating under the auspices of the African Union, it's easier because the African Union, all the African countries belong to the African Union. And uh, it allows us to be able to to engage with the people who impact policies at all the ministries of health uh, much easier. I would say this is one of the the key elements of having a unified uh, approach. And then the second thing is being able to build on the capabilities of different, uh, I would say, regions or or different institutions. So as we are weaning ourselves of COVID-19, we want to onboard other pathogens and it it can only happen in a priority way. So you find that some regions have got uh, HIV and TB co-infection as a as, a, as, as one of the priority areas. And then mm. you've got malaria that is endemic in most of East and Central and Western Africa. We've got Ebola, most, mm. mostly in Central Africa, that is a reimagined and imagined. And I think uh, something like antimicrobial resistance, I would say, cuts across the whole uh, continent. It's a, it's, we, we people are, I mean, we could appreciate that it's probably one of the biggest silent pandemics that we have. Yeah. So that now we build, we build on these capabilities um, to onboard these other pathogens, but in a prioritized way. And uh, we appreciate that. We don't expect the people who have been, uh, I mean, I would say, for instance, because Ebola is endemic in, in the central region uh, mm-hmm. of, of Africa, we expect that the, there's going to be learning and sharing of, of protocols with other countries just uh, for in case of, um, you know, in, in preparation for spillover events. Mm-hmm. So, 
the, yeah, so that I would say is the other advantage of uh, of having uh, this this kind of network is that we are going to learn and share from each other and use each other actually to build capacity uh, for for sustainability. Mm. On the other hand, though, are there, I don't want to say disadvantages, but perhaps some challenges that a unified approach would present, perhaps in terms of bureaucracy and something that, you know, uh, the PGI had to sort of learn and adapt to along the way? Yes, indeed. You put it very well. I think the issue of the unified approach is having this bureaucracy, not not bureaucracy, or just the imagination that one uh, mode of operation or one kind of scheme is going to apply to everywhere. Right. Uh, you realize that every time you you engage a particular member state, and I mean, it's quite a huge uh, landmass. So, like I said, fifty five countries. Mm. So every country will have its own kind of. Uh, differences the mm-hmm. different approach to it to how they uh they they tackle the whole issue of uh, pa- pa- the, the pandemic uh, response so i think uh key or what was important for us during the implementation of programs is to really kind of understand uh what uh is going on at the ground level um and then be able to approach it in a way that is it was going to add value to each each of of the countries uh based on how they 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 operate so there's that issue of uh bureaucracy and also just the the, the differences in the implementation approach mm. or also even in priorities uh, within uh, mm. each of the member states yes would there be an example that you could share where you know um that a sort of uh, there was that obstacle, but it was eventually overcome with the kind of understanding. Let's say let let's put one of the issues that I would perhaps say it would also be not necessarily a continent but a global issue. Uh, we would say in terms of the regulatory requirements. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you find that um, some countries require so many kind of certifications before some equipments or reagents are are uh, passed through the customs to mm-hmm. their countries. And then others, it's probably one, maybe or two things that you need to do because, uh, and I would say these are countries which have been doing some level of genomics before. So they already have some kind of an ecosystem that supports genomic sequencing. And then we have these countries where we, intro- we are introducing this uh, for the first time and uh, yeah. we are getting an equipment there and there's just so much infection in- inspection that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And the equipment can sit in the at the airport for about two to three months, just just waiting for the customs process to go up. Well, in another country, probably took a week uh, between, not even a week or a few days from when it got to the lab, uh, sorry, from when it got to the airport up to when it got to the lab. Mm. Uh, so we, this is one, for me, I would say that the regulatory issues are quite heterogeneous across the continent. Mm. And I think we are using our experience for the last two years to really plan on how to move forward uh, in terms of the genomic surveillance. So re- regulatory in terms of the import and export uh, requirements and also the regulation also in terms of the material transfer agreements because here we were transferring SARS-CoV-2 samples mm-hmm. between countries, not mm-hmm. even between labs. And um, at this point, we were just, I would say, responding to the pandemic. We were in response mode. So not a very systematic way because our ideally we just want to get the samples across as soon as possible yeah. because we need the other country to know do we have Omicron or Delta circulating in our in in the in, in country, so a lot of I would say learning 
that was done. Um, but and and we are using this learning study to design uh, what we, we are calling the P, the Africa PGI Phase Two Point Zero, mm. uh, just to make sure that the activities are, are streamlined and and that everything that any activity we design around any country we already kind of understand what is the prevailing conditions mm. um, based on our experience for the last two years all right we'll go for a quick break and continue the conversation after that with dr sarah mwangi implementation science expert from the africa pathogen genomics initiative at the africa centers for disease control and prevention stay tuned to health and living bfm 89.9 Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. As we kick off the new year, all eyes are on how the COVID pandemic will play out, at least in the first quarter of the year, um, especially with China preparing to rejoin the rest of the world. And as we've heard earlier this hour, genomic surveillance will continue to play a key role in detecting and monitoring not just uh, outbreaks in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also other disease outbreaks. And uh, today we have the perspective of the African Regional Genomic Surveillance Initiative from Dr. Sarah Mwangi. She's the implementation science expert from the Africa Pathogen Genomics Initiative, which was set up under the auspices of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Sarah, earlier you were talking about heterogeneity and diversity across the region. And on that note, what was the PGI's experience in, you know, convincing policymakers from all the different member states uh, in the African Union to buy into this initiative? Did you find that there were different levels of interest and commitment as well? Yeah, so I, I would say like we would have it's 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 quite different and like i said when we started we had only seven countries that had genomic surveillance capabilities in their national public health labs the, the fact that they're sitting there means that already there was buy-in. This, mm. If they're sitting in the NPHIs, it means that they are owned by the ministries of health and sure. they are funded yeah. by the by the budget, by the health budget. Uh, and then we've got these other ones where some of the some, there was no appreciation of the value of genomics until um, you know the, there was a emergence of these variants of concern like Delta uh, that was I think discovered in India and also beta here in, yeah. in South Africa. Then there was that interest because, you know, we've got these uh, member states trying to make uh, public health decisions as to what vaccines to administer. And then you've got these SARS-CoV-2 variants that are recalcitrant to these vaccines. So um, in the last two years, I, I think the SARS-CoV-2 has really kind of put off genomics and the, the importance of genomic surveillance into the limelight. So it's not difficult for us to really go forward and and convince these uh, policymakers. Um but I think in terms of the sustainability strategy and, and integrating this into the policies, for these member states where we, we introduce this, uh, we, we are planning on having what we are calling the national uh, genomic surveillance strategies. We are helping these countries to come up with that. Uh, and we are hoping, and we're not even not calling them national, but you're calling them national integrated genomic surveillance strategy um, so that we can see how will genomics really feel into the public health ecosystem, because we have put machines in the in the in the in the laboratories, mm. uh, and then now we want to see how will these uh, you know these machines be used uh, to help 
it could be in any way to help de- uh, alleviate the disease burden mm-hmm. uh, by uh, ensuring continued genomic surveillance of key pathogens. And that will differ from country to country. So you've got uh, countries that are more interested in looking at uh, uh, malaria and, and, and TB and the emerging viruses. Mm-hmm. So we are helping them come up with an integrated disease genomic surveillance strategy in country and then uh we want uh the idea is to really present these plans to the ministries of health so that they can be integrated into the public health ecosystem mm, absolutely the integration is is key because there's no point having the capacity or even the labs uh, and then it goes nowhere right exactly and and once it's integrated I mean, it's part of the sustainability that it means then we are saying it's owned by the by the member state. Right. It's owned by the Ministry of Health. So it is one of the many other things they plan for while they are doing the reviewing the, uh, you know, uh, the plans for the for the health for a particular maybe fiscal year and, and moving forward. This is really one of the key areas we are hoping to to be able to to do this and i we've tried we we have uh, we having some uh, pilots in about six member states that reached out to us mm-hmm. and hoping to scale that up once we see how or rather once we achieve some level of success with them yeah so so on the note of sustaining it comes with funding so how um, is the pgi funded and you know uh, when countries take uh, ownership then of the genomic surveillance within their own um, states, uh, how do they then go on to fund it? Yeah, so, I mean, if they take ownership, it means that they own it and uh, it becomes one of the themes or rather one of the areas that is supported for by the finance, uh, by the budget. In mm, the so new, they have to the, budget the for it. Mm. Exactly. So that's one of the things. And then secondly, uh, what we need to do really is to build capacity. We've been putting the equipment in the in the in these member states. This is that is one of way of doing the capacity. That is in terms of our, our infrastructure. But then uh, we are still in the early stages, or quite far, in terms of building capacity in terms of the required uh, skill set. That is the human resources to actually do this. Uh, genomics uh, assays and to do even the data analysis. So we are being very intensive, uh, I would say intentional and aggressive on that. Uh, Mm -hmm. We are coming up with some kind of short-term, medium-term and long-term goals to achieve that. Uh, The the short-term one being doing the short courses. We've done a lot of them in the last two years uh, where we bring in participants from the National Public Health Institution, put them together for about two weeks and... um, just take them through the uh, the genomic sequencing of of, of SARS-CoV-2 and then also uh, of also the bioinformatics analysis and mm-hmm. uh, we've done that also for monkeypox and that is that is for the RT-PCR. We are hoping to scale that up to genomic sequencing and also for the Ebola virus. So the idea is to now continue with these short-term trainings to build this capacity and also to come up with uh, some kind of uh, training that we will perhaps have some kind of certification for these public health practitioners and then long term in terms of trying to see if you can be able to embed some of these uh, key uh, public health practitioners in the into masters or PhD programs within the continent uh, for genomics and, and bioinformatics. So capacity building is another method or, or where we are looking for sustainability and also really 
having workshops where we train uh, these NPHI professionals to apply for grants, for their own grants uh, from the you know various donor landscapes. It's still going to be a, a public and private uh, pa- partnership. We will still need uh, perhaps the donors to continue with the donation for the reagents to continue uh, getting into the labs. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you know, the vision of PGI was to integrate pathogen genomics and bioinformatics into public health surveillance, outbreak investigations and improved disease control and prevention region wide. And that's that's a, a big vision, isn't it? How, how would you measure success? Let's say just taking the COVID-19 pandemic as an example. Okay, so I mean, COVID nineteen was a bad thing, but in retrospect, it really did put, uh, like I said, genomic surveillance in the in the limelight. Yeah. So, if I would just give you what we were able to accomplish in twenty twenty one, because at this point now there's so much coming out in terms of various of interest, various of concern. You're seeing uh, the you know the people in the public health arena wanting to know what is circulating. Is it resistant to the kind of uh, vaccines that we've been administering? And we, just for numbers, we only had 5,200 sequences in 2020, SARS-CoV-2 sequences from the African continent. And through our initiative, and not only our initiative, also with uh, uh, so many partners coming into play, Mm -hmm. we were able to increase from 5,200 sequences to more than 60,000 sequences Mm -hmm. in 2021. So that's a 12-times increase. These kind of initiatives, when we are able to bring uh, the, the people together, and I think in such a in, in a large scale, you are able to have a much more impact and much more appreciation of uh, the power of, of working together. Mm-hmm. But I think the most important thing really is 35 countries had no capability of knowing what was circulating in their continent, uh, in their in their in their countries, but they were able to know that because of this partnership, because they were allowed to send samples across to other countries for for sequencing to be done very, very a, a huge increase in the number of genomes that came out of uh, of of this activity from the continent mm-hmm. and also the number of member states really that had sequences we only had at least only 20 member states that had more than 10 genome sequences at the end of 2020 and by the end of 2021 all uh, 50 out of 55 member states had more than 10 uh, SARS-CoV-2 genome sequences uh, uploaded to GZ. Um yeah. so so that sharing of information PGI then uploads um everything that's uh, sequenced into GZ is that right? No, so this so the way it used to work with um so we'd have the national reference lab sending the the SARS-CoV-2 samples mm-hmm. to the regional hub. And I told you the regional hubs would be placed in different parts of the continent yeah. strategically, just to reduce the shipping costs, really. Mm. And then once the the sample gets to the regional hub, then the regional hub will do the sequencing and then generate the sequencing reports and then send that report to the member states. Mm then it's up to the member states to decide as to whether they want to put this uh, up on GZ or not, because that is really their prerogative. We just facilitate the transfer of samples, but we leave them, we give the information back to the Minister of Health, and then they make the decision as to what they will do with the information. All right. Uh, And, you know, we started the conversation and we've mentioned several times throughout that when you, uh, you know, before the start of the pandemic, uh, there were only seven centres with capacity for genomic surveillance um, throughout the African region. Uh, What are we seeing now in terms of uh, increase? 
Yeah, so we, uh, at the moment, as I'm speaking to you, we, we started with seven. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we are sitting at about 40. It's about 38, um, 30, 39 or 40. Fantastic. Okay, so we are talking about, I would say, about 17 or 18 uh, NPHIs or National Public Health Labs that do not have uh, genomic sequencing capabilities. And, and we are in the process of hoping that we'll get more partners to partner with us and in provision of these kind of capabilities within the, the continent. Uh, uh, because ideally, we would want all of the national public health institutions in the, in the continent to have some level. It doesn't matter how my, my neutral, just some level of genomic uh, sequencing capabilities in terms of the equipment and also in terms of the uh, qualified uh, workforce to do the sequencing. So we are, I would say, maybe about 70% there, mm-hmm. 60-70% there, and we are hoping to be 100% uh, as soon as, as we can. And, you know, if we look at the bigger picture of genomic surveillance and I, I guess preparedness for other outbreaks and pandemics, um, and, you know, some public health experts have expressed concerns that some countries are scaling down their uh, genomic sequencing instead now. Uh, so what's the balance that you think? And, and you yourself talked about how there are so many other pathogens that different countries in Africa are prioritizing like HIV, TB, malaria, Ebola. So I guess perhaps a look ahead at the role of genomic um, sequencing and surveillance. And I guess how should we prepare in 2023? Yeah, I think... We, the the SARS-CoV-2 variant, or rather the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic has really, like I said before, really put genomics, the value of genomics in any public health ecosystem in the limelight. And we use, uh, I would say, uh, genomics uh, uh, for being able to tell mm-hmm. the differences between the, 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 the SARS-CoV-2 viruses. So then you would know the genetic differences that made it, uh, I would say, the alpha, uh, uh, the, alpha the beta, mm-hmm. and so on, up, up until the Omicron. And it's going to keep changing, really. It's, it's really not over yet, because as the more it stays in the, in the population, the more it gets time to, to, to evolve. So I would say most countries are winning themselves of the COVID-19 uh, sequencing, because I think it's p- perhaps not very important at this point. We've been able to design the vaccines uh, and and the, and the drugs for that. And uh, the idea really is uh, is to how do we now continue with the surveillance of this uh, important pathogen mm-hmm. alongside so many other pathogens. And you're going to build that on what we have been, capacity that we've been building that for the last two years. And and I think the question that we really need to, or rather that we, we have to put forward so that we can continue to show the value of genomics in any public health ecosystem is really how, in the in, in terms of pathogen genomics, and, and uh, we are focusing here really on the pathogen genomics because we still do have the host other aspect of the, of the mm. genomics. What kind of value is it adding to a particular pathogen? Uh, does it make sense uh, to use genomics for diagnostics, for, for instance? Uh, maybe do you become more precise when you do diagnostics, when you do uh, uh, genomics? We're using it for evolution, like we did for the SARS-CoV-2. 
tracking the mutations. Mm -hmm. And then also we use genomics to do what you're calling the epidemiology. What are the transmission patterns of a particular pathogen? And also perhaps I would say like in the case of uh, Ebola really or other emerging and re-emerging infections is to really use genomics to track or to identify where the reservoirs of these uh, microorganisms are that keep Imagine and reimagine like your Lassa fever, uh, your mm-hmm. Ebola and mm-hmm. Marburg uh, and so on. So there's there's really uh, so much value for, for genomics, genomics in, in, in this case. I think yeah. the idea is to really um, uh, come up with a plan as to what exactly, what value the genomics is going to add to any pathogens. Because whatever I've outlined there is just a few of them, yeah. but it might not add value to all of them. And I think uh, most importantly, the, the, the whole idea is now to think if you are going to really be rolling out this kind of uh, program for doing the diagnostics, evolution, transmission patterns, and also for tracking reservoirs, I think where we really need to to come into an agreement uh, or what we need to put really put forward is how do we now make build on these economies uh, of, of scale, mm-hmm. you know, applying g- genomics to a, a wide array of, of applications for pathogens. How do we make it cheap or affordable? Yeah. I think, I think once we are able to be able to break that that, that barrier, then we really see a lot of uh, it taking place and I, I kind of I would say transforming the the, the healthcare or the public health uh, ecosystem. To the point that it becomes routine in our ecosystem, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think, Dr. Sarah, I'd like to wrap up now with um, perhaps coming back to that dream, that vision of the uh, PGI in the first place, and perhaps I could get a takeaway message from you to maybe other regions uh, that are looking to set up a similar initiative or perhaps are already doing so, what would be your message to them, uh, you know, I guess to mirror the success of Africa PGI? Yeah, so yeah, so thanks for that. I think maybe reflecting on what our experience has been in the last two years, I would uh, perhaps maybe have three things to say. Mm -hmm. The first thing is, You've got to really build the capacity and capabilities. So we're talking about the infrastructure and the workforce development. Mm. I think that that is key because uh, without that, then you cannot be able to do this uh, locally. Absolutely. And then secondly, yeah, secondly is um, really mapping out the strengths of each of the different uh, institutions in the network. Uh, because we don't expect that everybody will be able to do to to come up with uh, protocols and optimization uh, and optimize the assays for all pathogens. Mm-hmm. So, I, so how do you leverage on the strengths of each of these um, these institutions uh, so that the network would really borrow mm-hmm. best practices from each other and teach each other? Yeah, it's it's really leveraging on the strength and of the network to learn from each other. Yeah. Um, and then really one of the things that I would say perhaps applies to low and middle income countries, because this is a big problem here with us in Africa, is the supply chain issue for reagents. Yeah. Uh, if you are going to sustain this, then the issues of the reagents getting to the labs in, in time, uh, I would say the consequence in genomic reagents and also the ancillary reagents, it's, it's very important because we are going to use this information uh, to define a public health action. And, and, and when you're talking about public health action, then timeliness, 
Mm. And, and sharing is very important. Yeah. So the issue of the supply chain needs to be uh, to be really streamlined uh, for timeliness in, uh, in, in in data sharing. And I think to end on that still, because I've mentioned it's now the issue of sharing as well, really, do we have some kind of um, governance or regulations around the issue of sharing uh, the data that emanates from these experiments? Uh, because that is key. If, if we don't share, then we don't know what's going on uh, in, 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 our, in our regions. And, mm-hmm. and of course, maybe these events spill over. But really, what, what are the rules or what are the governance structures around this, this sharing uh, for both to whom it's being shared to and the person who is sharing? Mm-hmm. I think that one needs to be very clearly uh, outlined. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah. I've been speaking to Dr. Sarah Mwangi, implementation science expert from the Africa Pathogen Genomics Initiative at the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.